Welcome to Golden Great, Collaboration SS Podcast, empowering Asian American stories from the gold rush to the gold open. My name is Long. And I'm Elsa. Today, our producer and editor interviews Justine Villanueva. She publishes multilingual children's books that draws on Filipino indigenous roots and that feature the experiences of Filipino children in the diaspora. Justine draws on her ancestral roots to Kalasunai, Bukinan, Philippines. She currently lives in Davis, California with her husband and two young sons. She also teaches dance, is an attorney, and a real estate broker. Michelle and her talk about the new book, Jacket Agio. This is the most recent book and will be released this November. Our interview was done in light of Filipino American History Month in October. However, the production and other episodes lined up. This was released now, November. And today we have Michelle here with us to clarify certain things about the book. So usually we've seen other kind of books that are multilingual. Um, why is this important for Filipinos to read something like this? So this book is pretty important for the Filipino-American community, especially because um, there are three translations in this book, uh, Tagalog, Bisaya, and Binukid, which is an indigenous language. Tagalog is a very dominant language in the Philippines, and to have these languages um, used in the story, it preserves the identity of those people who live in the southern regions of the Philippines, especially because of the political climate of Mindanao, Philippines. Um, I was just there this past year traveling back and forth to Mindanao, and um, that's one of those places in the Philippines where people are like, oh, be careful, like it's dangerous out there. Like there's martial law out there, and there's... um, there's terrorists sometimes, and and there's a lot of Lumad killings. Lumad is um, the word for indigenous people there in the Philippines. Though there are a lot of misunderstandings of Mindanao, there is a strong um, preservation of indigenous culture. And to have the indigenous language, Benukid, being used in this book, I think it really highlights the importance of protecting people and giving a voice to those who might not feel like they're being heard in the bigger picture. So when we have books like this that use themes from the region of Mindanao, I think it is important for the Filipino uh, diaspora to understand that the Filipino identity is very complex and that there are many different cultures that um, exist in who we are because we are an archipelago of, th- of thousands of islands. So I think this book does a great job of trying to exemplify the complex identity of what, it's, what it is to be Filipino. I'm so glad that you get to share this story. Um, can you cue us in what we're going to hear first, Michelle? So before we have a book reading of Jack and Agu, Justine, the author of the book, will be providing us a kind of preface on the different languages used in the book and also the significance of why it's important to have this kind of story uh, to represent the Filipino-American community. Great. Let's take a listen. So there are approximately 180 languages and dialects in the Philippines, depending on the classification that you used. And we feature four in our book. There's Binukid, which means in the style of the mountains, and it's the indigenous language of the Bukidnon tribes. And then there's also Bisaya Cebuano, 
which is the language that originates in the island of Cebu but has spread to other islands, including Mindanao. And it's now the common language among the indigenous people and the settlers in Bukidnon. And then, of course, we have Filipino, which is the national language and one of the two official languages of the Philippines. And then English, which is the other official language of the Philippines and the primary medium of instruction. So those are our four languages in our book. But on the story pages, we translate some simple words to all three languages. And it is our hope that you will be inspired to use them in your daily life. But if you want the full translation of the whole story, you will find those in the back of the book. Um, the other thing I want to point out too is that you will see elegant writing that you, that's on the images of the Salimbal, which is the flying ship, and the Anting Anting, or the amulets around the boy's necks. And what's there is Baybayin, and it's one of the many ancient Filipino scripts. And it's just one of the many. And we acknowledge that this is not actually from Bukidnon. The, the Baybayin that we used here is not from Bukidnon. The word on the Salimbal, which is similar, or it's the same word that we used in the Anting Anting, is Kapwa. Uh, in the indigenous Filipino worldview, Kapwa is the shared existence of the self with all forms of life, human and non-human alike. And it is Kapwa that inspires us to connect and to build community and strive towards the collective good. So we do hope that you will continue to learn about the Bukidnon's history and culture as well as the indigenous tribes' ongoing fight for sovereignty because their struggle for justice and equity and inclusion is very similar to ours here in the Filipino diaspora. And we also hope that this inspires you to learn the indigenous history of the land where you live, wherever you are, because we stand in solidarity with indigenous communi communities all over the globe uh, in our fight to heal and protect Mother Earth. Si Jack ug si Agyo. Nayo sa kabata nagingan ug Jack. Si Jack ganahan kaayo mo adto sa basahunan uban siyang inahan. Ganahan pud si Jack ug mga libro. Mga libro nga mahitungod sa mga astronaut nga gahagit ug gravidad. Mga pirata nga nakapiring ang usa ka mata. Ug mga salamangkero nga gadala ug magamhanang baton nga nakatagbo ug mga hinanduraw nga mga binuhat. Matagabi Jack and Agyo Written by Justine Villanueva and illustrated by Lenore Montigao Once there was a child named Jack. Jack loved going to the library with his mama. Jack also loved books. Books about astronauts. One-eyed pirates. Shiver me timbers. And wand-wielding wizards. Off on their grand adventures. But then, Jack noticed something. In many of the books he read, most of the characters he saw, blue-eyed, yellow-haired, and fair-skinned, did not look like him. He worried it meant he could not be a pirate or an astronaut or a wizard after all. Jack was sad for a long time until he thought of a brilliant idea. 
<laughs> Jack took out his favorite crayon, the brown crayon. Brown like the champorado, the chocolate rice porridge that his Lolo, his grandpa, often made him for breakfast. Brown like the mud he loved to roll in when it rained. Brown like his mama's skin. Jack took out a library book. He colored the one-eyed pirate brown and the wand-wielding wizard brown. He colored one page and then two. And when he finished coloring the whole book, he took out another. His kuya, his older brother, decided to help. They colored for a long time. A few weeks passed. One afternoon, Jack's mama called him over. The librarian just called me, she said. She would like to know if you colored the books brown. Through his tears, Jack said, I did, mama. I fixed them so the astronauts and the wizards would look like me. His mama gave him a big hug. That night, Jack's mama tucked him into bed and told him a story. Once there was a child named Agu, she said. His Lola, his grandma, gave him an anting-anting to wear around his neck to protect him from harm. He grew up to lead a fight against the invaders of his homeland. He had black hair and brown skin and looked very much like you. As Jack's mama told the adventures of Agu, Jack's ears perked up. His eyes grew wide. He imagined he was with the brave Ague. Frolicking with the Shokoy and Serena, the spirit keepers of the Pulangi River. Seeking permission from the Diwata, guardian of the forest, to catch wild boar for the villagers to eat. Offering flowers and herbs to the Babaylan healer. and helping his Lolo, Lola, Mama, Papa, Kuya, family, and fellow Kapwa ride the golden flying Salimbal to everlasting freedom. Jack slept with a smile on his face. The next morning, Jack went with his Mama to see the librarian. He explained why he colored the books brown. He said he was sorry and offered to pay. Before Jack left, the librarian promised she would do her best to help him and other children find the books that they longed for. From then on, everywhere he went, Jack brought his crayons and papers with him. He loved to draw all the characters from his mama's stories, especially Agyu, who looked very much like him. The End And we're back. Long and I actually watched an off-camera video of Justine reading the book, and so we actually got to see the illustration and the art. I, for one, think it's very, very cute. I know Long has strong feelings about that. What do you think, Long? Um, I like the book, especially the way they use colorization. Um, for my profile that I worked on with uh, Soleil, I had Stephanie do a caricature picture of our profile. And one of the critiques she said was like, just make sure my skin is a little bit darker. And for some, people don't realize that's really important, right? Um, colorization 
in a lot of media we tend to whitewash. And this book really addresses colorization where the boy is looking at these books and not seeing himself. I also think about the movie Moonlight. It was an African-American movie that had staff working behind the scenes that were also African-American. And when you watch that movie, a lot of the lighting coloring was made for their skin. Um, and so seeing this book, having an actual illustrator working with someone Filipino to really give their two cents of what the color should look is, is very important. What are your thoughts? What I really liked about it was the content of the story, and I liked what, you know, I, I agreed about what makes it unique is what Michelle said, the three translations of words that they selectively chose. I really liked the contents of the book the most, uh, especially the language preservation part, because I feel very strongly about that. Um, I grew up in a household where we spoke Cantonese, because my family is from southern China. And as some of you guys might know, Hong Kong also primarily speaks Cantonese. But the majority of China speaks Mandarin, and that's actually the national language. And actually, I read an article, and it's probably one of my most engaged tweets that I've ever tweeted out. But I tweeted out an article stating how the Chinese government is kind of overpowering people in southern China and taking over media and you know, only broadcasting Mandarin because they don't want people to speak Cantonese anymore. They're kind of phasing that out. And they even have signs in school where it says that it's uncivil to speak Cantonese. So kids grow up, they feel ashamed of their culture, they don't want to speak Cantonese. And I think that's very sad. I don't think that one language has to overrule another. I think they can both coexist. Why not, right? They both have such rich history. So it's a little sad to me that it's being phased out and I totally agree that dominant culture shouldn't necessarily, you know, crush the minority, just as Michelle said. So I really appreciate books like this. And it kind of inspires me. It's like, hey, may maybe one day I will create books of my own for said children that I may have, <laughs> depending on my finances. I'm just kidding. Um, my desires. I, may, I would love children, but um, I do get worried about the culture that I pass on and the language that I pass on because... I feel like language does get diluted with each generation. As hard as you want to work on it and teach them, you know, they have to feel that connection themselves. And maybe they've never visited the homeland. You know, they don't have immigrant parents. You know, they're a little more privileged. I'm not even that great myself at Cantonese or Mandarin that my children are going to be even worse. So, yeah. Long, do you feel the same? Yeah, cultural <laughs> preservation is very important. Um, you know, because... For me, Vietnam um, is a very tricky subject for my parents, right? Through their actions, I can see a lot of trauma they have. And so, for example, my parents never fly anywhere. Did you know that? And I finally realized is that there is something traumatizing, like leaving, you know? And my parents have tried to build their life forcefully in Chicago, like one of the biggest practical jokes that America played on my parents. Like, you're tropical people. Bam right in the cold, right? And so they're trying to make that work. And then after like 10 or 20 years, it's like what they know back in Vietnam has changed, right? Me being more educated to understand these things, people don't understand how far I had to go to and fight these things when that stuff wasn't there for me, right? And so it is important that like, if I had kids or my cousins have kids or my niece and nephews, like they don't have to go through all that like struggle, like figure all these things out, you know? So trauma can really block someone from telling their story. And, you know, it's something that inhibits communication with someone. With children books, it can be 
a easier way to engage with a hard topic with children in a lighthearted manner, but then can open up doors for these stories to continue further to be explained. Just like in this book, um, Colorization, where if the kid is more curious, they can ask the parents more about it and they can get more deeper into it. And here's the rest of Michelle and Justine's interview. Hello everyone, it's me, Michelle, and I'm here with our special guest, Justine Villanueva, who is the founder of Sawaga River Press, a Filipino independent nonprofit small press. We're so happy to have you here with um, this week's Golden Great episode. Hello, thanks for having me. How are you doing today? I'm great, Michelle, thank you. It's so nice to see you again. So, me and Justine actually met last year at a dance workshop, an embodied storytelling workshop by Same Dizon. Shout out, Same. Hello, Same. And um, if you didn't know, Justine is a very good dancer. Oh, and, um, thank you. <laughs> and she's um, really all about storytelling. I could just see it in the way she dances and in the way she talks. And um, yeah, we became friends after that. Um, I really liked her energy. I liked going on the BART back home with her, having a long <laughs> That's conversation. That's right. That was a long BART ride. <laughs> but fortunately, it was enough time for me to tell you about my project. So yes. it all worked out. Crazy. I thought it was really meant to be like to meet you because mm-hmm. at that workshop, I had just come from the Philippines mm-hmm. straight from Bukidnon. Uh-huh. And then I met you and you're like, oh, I'm from Bukidnon. And I'm just like, wow, <laughs> that is so awesome. Like, yes, I was actually impressed because usually when I say I'm from Bukidnon, people always say, where is that? And then I have to, you know, like, it's near Davao, it's near Cagayan de Oro, where, you know, people know those places more than they do uh, Bukidnon. So when you said, oh, I was just there, I was like, no, you're kidding. Are you serious? So anyway, I was happy. So for people who don't know, Bukidnon is um, a mountainous region in Mindanao, which Mm -hmm. is the southern island of the Philippines. So if you could tell us a little bit more about... um, where you came from in the Philippines and what brought you to America. Sure, like sure. I was born and raised in Malaybalay, Bukidnon. Um, Bukidnon is where my my grandmother on my father's side um, have lived, well, her family has lived there for forever. So um, she is from Kalasungay, which is uh, the barrio next to Malaybalay. And uh, she's a member of the Bukidnon tribe. Yeah, so I left for the United States when I was 17, landed in San Francisco, lived in Daly City. I don't know, I think it's the Filipino capital here in the U.S. I'm not sure if that's really true or not, but it seems like it. So you said that you came here to the States when you were 17, so you experienced a good um, portion of your life there in the Philippines. Yes. Um, So you speak Bisaya? Yes. So I speak Bisaya, that's uh, my first language. Growing up, there was really no consciousness on my part about the the Bukidnon identity that my grandmother had. I think a big part of it was because that wasn't encouraged. It was to be, I guess, let me say, to be indigenous, at least at that time, wasn't really a good thing. It wasn't um, something that you could be proud of. 
Um, so my grandmother never taught her language to my dad. And then, of course, we never learned it. So there's a lot of people, at least back then, who were, who had, like me, some ancestral roots, but didn't know how to speak Binukid. And so Bisaya is the language that the most people spoke or speaks, though. And then, of course, we learned English and Tagalog at schools. So, so it's, you're trilingual? Yeah. Well, yes. <laughs> yes. Is that tri? <laughs> I speak a little bit of Spanish and Italian. So, <gasps> but, um, um, but I'm not, my speaking three languages is not really such a special thing or a unique thing. Most people there speak at least three. And then for those who have retained their indigenous languages, they speak four. And yeah, that's, that's one thing that I really was impressed by when I visited Mindanao. Like, mm-hmm. Preserving the language seems to be very important to the mm-hmm. community, to the mm-hmm. people who live there. Mm-hmm. Um, especially because um, like uh, with Tagalog and Filipino as a very dominant language, mm-hmm. um, I think it's important to preserve um, the identities of those mm-hmm. in Mindanao. Mm-hmm. To bring it back to uh, your book, I was really intrigued by the way that you incorporated um, those languages into mm-hmm. your children's books. Mm-hmm. Um, and the book that you were telling me about on the VART was Jack and Agu. Is mm-hmm. that that's a play on Jack and Jill? Like Jack that? and Jill, yes. So, so Jack and Agu play on Jack and Jill. I was trying to not make it too male and female. Um, I want it to be just instead of a boy and a girl, it's just a child and a child. Um, And hence, that's where you get that play on um, the Jack and Jill reference. One of the things that I wanted to do with this book is, other than highlighting a Filipino-American protagonist, I also wanted to um, include other diverse identities. Mm-hmm. So Agyo is um, a very prominent traditional figure mm-hmm. in um, Philippine epics. Mm-hmm. So could you tell the listeners a little more about that character? Sure, sure. So we have what's called the Ulaging, which are the epics that are Bukidnon based. And I'm going to just, I'm flipping here because I want to provide the information that the book itself has and on our pages. Um, and it says here, Bukidnon has a very rich oral folk tradition and sung or chanted the Ulaging epic, so the, the epics are called Ulaging, narrates the life of Agyo, Agyo who fights for his people's independence. So there are many variations of the Agyo story. So uh, it's, a, it's a Manobo story, but also you can find it all over Mindanao. And the particular story that I have used in this book is based on the uh, stories in Kalasungay, which is where my Lola is from. And this is the story about how Agyo leads his people to the Salimbal, which is a flying ship, and then flies them away from the bad guys, basically the Spanish colonizers. Mm. Um, And they fly towards freedom and immortality. So in the book, we don't really talk about all that stuff because actually the, the version in the book of Agyo is not the warrior Agyo, mm-hmm. but the child version um, 
of Agyo, of how he would have been when he was a child. So like, like I read in my stories, he's going off on his adventures, he's off playing with the Sirena and the Shokoi and asking permission from the Diwata and um, offering flowers to the Babaylan. So all these things are not something that you would find in the actual Ulaging epics, mm. but it's more of a, a, a reimagination of what Agyo would have been like when he was a kid and what adventures he might have had when he was a kid. And then having Jack kind of going with Agyo, the, the, the child Agyo, doing these adventures together. I really love the way that you're bringing together contemporary mm-hmm. um, children's stories with really um, indigenous and mm-hmm. very old stories passed on orally. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if um, the story of Agu is um, something that you would listen to, uh, hear about or read about when you were a kid mm-hmm. in Bukidnon. So actually, no. So growing up, this was something that I didn't hear about. Like I said, um, my Lola wasn't one to pass on the traditions, uh, not even the language or not even um, the stories. So all these, what I know now of the Bukidnon culture and, and the stories and all that, I have learned when I was older and making the effort to decolonize mm-hmm. and to basically reclaim that ancestry that I, that I didn't, really, didn't really get to develop all those reasons when I was still a child. And I thought that it's something that I would like for my kids to learn about and I would like for other kids to learn about. And I think with this book, we have tried and I think succeeded in introducing concepts or characters that are for the, at least for the the kids growing up in America, like my kids, Mm. um, that are foreign to them. Like, for example, a babaylan. Like, mm-hmm. what is a babaylan? You know, we, mm-hmm. we don't think of healers. And, and, you know, when we think of healing, we think of doctors. We go to the doctor. And that's, mm-hmm. that's just how the Western tradition has taught us. Mm-hmm. So when I read this book to my seven-year-old and he asks, like, well, what is a babaylan? And I explain to him that, you know, this is a figure that's kind of like a doctor, except they use mm. herbs and all that. And then he gets it. But I use that opportunity to kind of expand his knowledge and make it make him see that there are alternative ways to to being or to to doing things. And same thing with introducing the concepts of the diwata and the shokoi and the serena as the keepers of nature. Mm. Now the diwata being the keeper of the forest. And then the Siren and the Shokoi being the keepers of, of the water or the river. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I would get responses from children going, oh, but they are not real or, you know, but they, but they love mermaids, you know, and the mermaid is very familiar to them. But for <laughs> some reason, when you switch it to the, the Shokoi or the sirena and then give them that extra layer of identity as a keeper of the mm-hmm. ocean, it becomes somehow different. Mm. Anyways, what I was hoping to do, and I think what we've succeeded in doing with this book, is just basically introducing these indigenous ways of thinking Mm. um, in a way that's kid-friendly and age-appropriate. I think that's really important, especially in this time and age with all the environmental disasters and everything going on in the world. It's like so important that you start 
you know, educating them through the stories they read mm-hmm. to um, be connected to the, you know, cultures mm-hmm. that learned how to preserve and take care of the land. Right. I really appreciate using Agu as a character here to um, take Jack's eyes and look through his to really explore, you know, the Philippine landscape, mm-hmm. even though he is... Um, in America, mm-hmm. that he's able to experience something that is home, mm-hmm. experience something that is dear to him, that but he can't physically be uh-huh. with. Um, and Agyo, um, when I was with the Tala Indig tribe, mm-hmm. um, my friend Aki, who is the son of the Datu, mm-hmm. um, he told me that Agyo is their ancestor, and mm-hmm. he is who they see as someone who. Um, has preserved the culture like a um, cultural bearer. Mm-hmm. I think for me too, um, he is the symbol of resistance. You know, he's uh, in my book. He, I have the little kid, you know, raising his brown crayon in resistance. Mm-hmm. And I think we're never too young to resist, you know, the mm-hmm. oppressive <laughs> forces System. that keep us down. Right, 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 right. <laughs> But um, I was trying to make that parallel between um, Agio being the one who leads his people away from the Spanish colonizers mm-hmm. and, um, you know, the kids, even though they're just kids, being able to really resist still. Um, there's a consciousness that we are able to encourage in young kids. And I think it's important as they grow older to have that, that ability mm-hmm. And the sense of possibility that they are not just imprisoned by mm-hmm. the fate that they have right now, but that they mm-hmm. could do something about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, that's kind of what Agyu also represents. And I'm trying to make it so that it also passes down to us and to the youngest member of our community. Even, even five-year-olds can, <laughs> can raise their brown crayon and go rogue. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really interesting in Bukitnon, which is, um, you know, it it is a region of seven tribes, mm-hmm. uh, in the indigenous tribes. Uh, when I when I went there, I really felt like there was a movement. I felt like mm-hmm. they're really about trying to stay strong as tribes, um, mm-hmm. to keep their cultures strong, and to use tradition mm-hmm. in um, as a revolution, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That that is a way to combat the oppression of mm-hmm. colonialism of systematic mm-hmm. um, oppression so what I found was really interesting is um, that you did have some traditional in, in, indigenous um, rituals done mm-hmm. with um, your collaborators who worked with the book mm-hmm. so how was that for you and um, how did that come about when I first started making this book I was really scared to touch all the indigenous stuff because I didn't feel like I had the right to do it, you know. Even though I can claim to have my ancestral roots going all the way to my grandmother and, you know, her ancestors, I still felt like, in a way, I'm still an outsider because I've been here in the U.S. for how many years? And I'm always, you know, I'm worried about you know, appropriation and mm-hmm. all that stuff. And I'm just getting it wrong, you know, just getting it wrong because I'm not there. And so it was important for me to know that whatever I'm doing with the book has been looked upon by the community and given approval. And so I was really fortunate to have my friend, um, 
Dr. Ramos, she's working at the, the Bukidnon State University, and she contacted the people who are working with the Bukidnon Studies Center, and they, she helped find the translator for the Binukid, well, for all the languages, really, but mainly for the Binukid, and made sure that all the references that we made in this book are vetted by the community. So they looked at the design for the the clothing, for example, told us whether it's the right pattern, with whether it's the right color scheme, whether whether it is appropriate. Mm. And so that's a big relief for me. Before we actually started with a big chunk of creative work, I put in a request to have the manuscript looked at and if possible for them to give their permission however mm. way they see fit. And that was how we ended up having, well, they ended up having a pamuhat for the manuscript. And they had an elder from, um, from the community do the ritual. You know, they had, um, they offered the chicken and they had, um, I'm trying to remember what's on their, their coins, <laughs> their coins <laughs> and their, uh, they had coins for sure. And then they had rice and then beetle they nut? had betel nut. Yeah, that's right. I'm like, mama, mama, what is it? Um, <laughs> um, anyway, so I wish, I still wish I, I was there, but, you know, I'm hoping to go back sometime soon with the books and then have another Thanksgiving ritual. Um, but anyway, that's, that's how it came about. I wanted it to just be a thing that the community approves of. Or at least gives their blessing to, and mm-hmm. and say you know it's 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 according to our wishes as well. Mm. So so if you could like tell a little bit about why you started um, Sawaga River Press. Sure, sure. This all started as a personal project. Uh, when I had my kids, when they were babies, I started looking for books that either had Filipino looking characters or had stories about Filipino children and I was very surprised to find that there were only three four maybe five children's books out there Uh, Filipino American books I'm not counting the books in Tagalog that are in the Philippines I'm talking about Filipino American books published by the big presses and so that got me into this path it was right around the time when um, the campaign for uh, we need diverse books started, um, and so I started looking into it and started looking at the data that they were showing, which was that, you know, if you had a pie chart, there's like maybe one percent of the children's books that are published have Asian characters or are written by Asian writers or made by Asian illustrators. So we are like, we're this very small, small, small piece of the pie. And it just blew my mind because there are so many of us here in the United States and what are our kids reading? And so that was one of the reasons why I started thinking like, okay, maybe I should do this. And the other thing was that I knew that if I wanted books that had the language component, the Bisaya component, it's something that I would probably never find because, first of all, there's, there's, there's hardly books that have Filipino stories or characters. Narrow it down to Bisaya language, that's, you know, that's even harder to find. And so I figured 
if that's what I wanted, I'm not gonna get it if I wait for somebody else to make it. So it had to be something that I have to make. I was just thinking, of, I'll make 10 copies, like go old school, you know, get my glue and, um, and my Sharpie. And, and I really actually, I, I wish I could find the three books that I made that were just like sewn together and punch hold. And it had, you know, like uh, Bisaya words in it. And that the kids in my family loved. They loved it. And they did learn the words that were in it. And so that got me thinking like, oh my gosh, if, if, my, if the kids in my family want this kind of book, then you know, all the other kids out there, there might be more kids that, that want to have this kind of book. Right after college, I had a marketing job at a publishing company for two years. But I never really did anything with the production or like the, the whole process. The whole publishing process was very foreign to me. Luckily, or coincidentally, at that time, I knew a friend who knew a friend who used to work for the Children's Press before they became um, Lee and Lo. And she had just kick-started her own book. And she raised, like, Janine Macbeth is her name. And she kickstarted it and raised like $12,000 and had just published her book. And it's beautiful. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, you start thinking of like self-published books. Automatically, our colonized minds think, okay, it must not be of good quality because it's self-published. You know, it hasn't mm -hmm. been given the go by the big presses. But if you look at this book, it's 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 good quality it's amazing and it's anyway so I thought oh my gosh this might this might be the way that I could get the books created and so I went to her and she taught me basically everything she knew about creating the books from like finding editors to work with you to develop your story <clears throat> where and how to find your illustrators you know like just all these things that I would never have known had she not shared her experience. And this was all just out of the goodness of her heart. And it's, it's crazy to think about all that expertise out there that she's just willing to share because she also believed in the vision that I have of creating books that are diverse, that we need badly. And so from there, um, the first book, The Mama Mama, Do You Know What I Like, was created that was meant to be only just a one one book project. But then after it, people started asking, oh, when are you going to do the next book? And then now I'm thinking, oh my gosh, when I started selling the books and meeting the community, mm -hmm. it's very inspiring to see all the people who would come up to me and say, I wish I'd seen this book before. I wish I'd had this book. I wish I'd had a Bisaya book. I, some, sometimes they're crying. And, you know, these are older, you know, older. They're not kids, obviously, but the parents who come up to me and say, oh my gosh, I've never seen a Bisaya book in all my life. And they're crying. And it's really, it, it's really inspiring and motivating. And so now we have a second book and hopefully a third and a fourth no, that's a great uh, explanation. I feel like the stars really aligned mm -hmm. for you to um, really manifest that vision that you had. Mm -hmm. and I think you have a very powerful voice, especially mm -hmm. coming from Mindanao, mm -hmm. speaking Bisaya. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of Filipino-American children are going to look forward mm -hmm. to reading your books. Our stories, or my stories, 
are just as good because you know going into it feeling like oh my gosh my story is not good enough or you know like have all these insecurities about telling our stories and what kind of reception it will have from people and one of the big lessons that I've learned was just to really trust in your story and just to tell it the way you can and it'll stick with some people and it will not stick with other people but there will be if you just had one little kid out there who like you said was happy to see this book with a character that looks like him it's like that's it that's 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 all I want for this book to achieve and then the other thing too is we really blew my mind <laughs> when I was doing this was just how much the community came together to support this book in various ways not just the crowdfunding we raised five thousand dollars for the first book I'm going to tell you this story. It's kind of a tangent. You can cut it out. But <laughs> we actually, for the first book, intended to um, raise $10,000. But then for some reason, the world was just, the world is crazy. One of our good friends, good family friends, won the lottery. Wow. <laughs> he won a million dollars. Right? Like, how random is that? Like, wow. he won a million dollars. And... I asked for money and he said, sure, I'll give you. And he gave me $5,000. Wow. And that took care of half of the, 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 wow. the crowdfunding goal, which was good because, you know, it was our first crowdfunding. It's scary. And it still was quite an effort to get the $5,000. But anyway, talk about stars aligning. <laughs> so we got our 5000 from this million dollar winner, um, lottery winner. Anyway, so, but it wasn't just him. It wasn't just like, I think we had 200 crowdfunders for the book. But we also had people who were just happy to donate their time and their expertise. They're like, here, I'll do free graphic designing for you. Or here, I'll, you know, do free logo making for you. It was crazy to me because I'm not used to asking for free <laughs> um, help. Mm -hmm. But it was there. And so... For me, knowing that the community has me. Mm. So. Wow. I think that's really beautiful that yeah. behind these books, a community was created. Yes. I mean, I always say, this is not really my book. This mm. is everybody's book. I mean, for example, mm. in the the Jack and Agu book, we have four official groups that have collaborated with us. Center for Babaylan Studies, uh, the Balik Sedagat Bangkok Journey Project, uh, the Bulasan Center for Filipino Studies at UC Davis. And our biggest collaborator is the Bukidnon State University and the Bukidnon Cultural Center. And they've provided so much to this book. It's, mm. I, you know, I don't, I don't know how I could, how I could ever repay, I'm mm. doing air quotes here, mm. um, for everything that they've done. But really, this is, this is the work of so many people. Wow. Oh, that's really beautiful. And to go to this uh, wonderful book that um, is coming out November? Yes, yes, November, just in time, hopefully, for the holidays. <laughs> so this book, Jack and Ague, is, um, I feel like, uh, a very beautiful book. Thank you. Shout out to, to our illustrator, Lenore. Very charming illustrations. She did a very good job. I'm really, I'm really glad to be, um, to have worked with her for this book. Yeah, it's really beautiful. I love the art too. So, um, with that, do you have any future plans with Jack and Agu? 
um, and how you wish to <laughs> distribute it or sell it. Or... Oh, for the book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so the our initial print for this book is a thousand, and about two hundred fifty of the books are already slated for our crowdfunders. And so, for the rest, we have been mainly hitting um, local festivals, local events, uh, primarily Filipino American events. Um, you can find them in some local libraries, like I know you can find them in Davis, and you can find them um, in Vallejo. There's a smattering of libraries that have them. There's also copies of them in the Filipino bookstores, like Archipelago has them and Philippine Expressions has them. So this is part of the thing that I was telling you a while ago outside of the interview is the this, this, this struggle or the challenge of getting the books out there because for now we don't really have the structure. We don't have those systems in place that will help get these books out to where they need to be going. By that I mean to little Filipino kids. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like for us as a small press that's really rooted in the community that we might have a better chance of reaching those kids because we know where the Filipinos go as far as festivals and events and all that right like mm-hmm. like for example the undiscovered you know they they come out and they see the book and they buy it so we as a press as a filipino american press know where those places are so we stand a better chance of reaching our market that's for now at least that's the the plan for the distribution of the books or the marketing of the books um, and maybe in the future we'll you know we'll make more books more than a thousand as somebody who's doing this for the first time, I mean, I don't know, other than Christina from Sari Sari Press. Hey, Christina. And Gail Romasanta, who's doing the Delta Press uh, publishing. There's really no other small presses that are creating these Filipino-American books. Mm. And so I feel a certain kind of responsibility, since I'm, in a way, trailblazing it. Mm-hmm. I feel that part of the responsibility that I have is to also create these structures or these institutions so that people who want to create these books, and I know that there are many who have come up to me to say, I want to make books too, how do I make them? Mm. I want to be able to also say, this is what I've learned, Mm. this is what I have set in place, come and learn what you can and, you know, build upon this little thing that I have created so we'll see it's it's a it is a big task being able to share the knowledge to any future people who Mm -hmm. want to create their own stories and Mm -hmm. make books just like you Mm -hmm. Um, I think it really is an inspiration and I really glad to have you on this podcast because um, I think for Filipino American History Month I Mm -hmm. think you are making history Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> I think that you are really paving the way for other authors, other illustrators to tell the stories and let Filipino children feel mm-hmm. seen, represented, and mm-hmm. um, that they can feel like the characters that they see in their mm-hmm. books. So for all the listeners who would like to read your books, see your books, um, buy your books, mm-hmm. where would you lead them? Where would you tell them to go? So we sell them through our website. Um, our site is called Sawaga River Press 
www.sawagwa.com and I will spell it out. It's S-A-W-A-G-A-R-I-V-E-R-P-R-E-S-S.com. They could also find the books um, in the two. I only know of two Filipino bookstores. I don't know if you know of other. I only know of um, Archipelago in San Francisco and then Philippine Expressions in L.A., and then eventually we will put them up on Amazon. But for now, um, those will be the, the main places to go. Well, I had a great time talking to you. Thank um, you. But uh, if there's anything else that you would like to talk about or say anything that I missed that I didn't ask or anything, is there anything that you would like to add? About the book? Anything. Well, I just, okay, so one thing because you asked me. <laughs> My favorite part um, of this book is the page that has a bookshelf. All throughout the book, I've, I've, I've tried to put little Filipino knickknacks here. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah the, the giant fork and spoon, of <laughs> course. Um, we have the anting-anting that says kapwa. But my favorite one... I have this page where I've put in a bookshelf and in these and in the bookshelf I have put several books that I think are very important at least to me. These are titles that I think are important for Filipino American kids to read like I have here Noli Metanger of course. And then I have America is in the Heart, I have Empire of Care, I have The Babaylan from Ateleni Strobo. So I flag this because it's easy to miss because the books are tiny and I think for some of them you might actually have to bring out your magnifying your magnifying glass. glass to see what mm-hmm. the titles are and I think that's fun I think that's kind of a little treasure hunt but I spy yeah I, I so I flag it so that you know people don't miss it because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I think it's a cool little addition to the the story yeah, shout out to all those books and those authors. Yeah. So if you want to hear more from Justine, um, do you have a do you have a social media handles that um, email? <laughs> <laughs> well, so our main thing right now is we have our website, which is I I gave already, and then we do have a Facebook page. Um, you could find it if you just put Sawaga River Press, it'll pull it up for you, and. For now, that's that's it. I know we have to build on our social media exposure and presence. Um, that's going to be on my list of things to do. We're growing. We are. This is one of the growing pains. Oh yeah. Hopefully, this um, <laughs> podcast is like is there for you to help promote you. Yes. Too. Yes. Thank you so much for inviting me to this one. Mm-hmm. I also have to say this is my first podcast, so it's oh, a wow. little yeah. <laughs> you did a great job. I think you did better than me. <laughs> it's just it's a little strange to be talking to you across the you know. Cross Mic- each other. in front of our face. <laughs> I know, like, I get a little intimidated by the microphone, too. <laughs> but it was a lovely conversation. Yeah, I'm so glad to spend this time with you. Yes, thank you, thank you. I look forward to seeing you again and yes. hearing more from you. So, yeah, collab is really, um, we really appreciate uh, you being on this podcast. So, Me thank too. you so much, Justine. Thank you. And that's going to do for episode 10 of Golden Grape. Send questions, comments, and episode ideas our way to goldengrape at collaboration 
www.golden-grace.org. Don't forget, with a K. Golden Grace producer is Michelle Abiera, and our executive producer is Josh Coe. Sound mixing and editing was done by Rudy Lopez and Michelle Abiera. Our fabulous theme song was composed by Robert Gutt. Please like, favorite, rate us, and make sure you tell a friend. We'll catch you all in the next episode. Stay golden. golden.